Hello, welcome to a very special episode of the Bomb Squad podcast, where two white guys are going to talk about black revolutionaries. Two white leftists, okay, comrade. Okay, okay, yes, comrade. We are we are woke. Uh, this is going to be the episode where uh, the audience who tuned in because like, oh, look at these little silly guys making to talk about the treasure planets and the Wandavision. Now we're going to be like, we are communists. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a perfect way to follow from our re- review of a, a Disney movie and a Netflix movie made by uh, the white Jewish guy Sam Levinson. I. I think this is a perfect follow-up to the content that we've made so far. It's shifting straight into leftist theory. And in proper fashion, I would like to begin with a quote. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing class has constantly hounded them, received their theories with the most savage malice, the most furious hatred, and the most unscrupulous campaigns of lies and slander. After their death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons to canonize them, so to say, and hallow their names to a certain extent for the consolidation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping the latter while at the same time robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance, blunting its revolutionary edge, and vulgarizing it. That is a quote by Vladimir Lenin from his book, The State and Revolution. Yep, we're quoting Lenin, baby. I like his. I like Lenin's other quote more. Liberals are cringe. Uh, my favorite Lenin quote is that anime was a mistake. My favorite Lenin quote is, Stalin, what are you doing with that gun? We're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. We're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, The new movie uh, just came out uh, on HBO Max and in theaters, directed by Shaka King, the director who did uh, Newlyweds in 2013 and The Short Mulligans in 2015. Uh, This thing was mostly produced by Charles D. King. He footed like $13 million of the $26 million budget. That is the producer behind... Such movies as Fences, uh, Harriet, the Harriet Tudman movie, Roman J. Israel Esquire, and um, my favorite and most relevant, Sorry to Bother You, the other Marxist movie to come out in recent memory. They both star the same guy. That's, I thought about that at the end. I was like, they, these movies star the same guy. Lakeith Stanfeld, Marxist icon? The similarities with Lakeith Stanfield's role in Sorry to Bother You and this are outstanding to consider because in Sorry to Bother You, he plays Cassius, a sort of um, a young black man who sells out in order to get as high up on the chain of capitalism that he can because he's seeking power and the people beneath him are trying to unionize and organize so they can all have better lives. Meanwhile, the whole through line of him in that movie is he just wants to see what's at the top. He wants to find the room where it happens. He wants to have a seat at the big boy table and he has to choose between being a very successful capitalist and making sure that his friends have living wages and decent lives. And so he kind of plays like a turncoat. They, they bring it up in, in Sorry to Bother You. I think they, they, they're they like, hey, will you be our, our Martin Luther King? Will you be our mole? And in this movie, <laughs> he plays an actual famous mole. He, he plays one of history's famous rats, hence why he gets compared to Judas in the title. He plays... Bill O'Neill. He plays Bill O'Neill, uh, who is a kid who at 17 got drafted in by the FBI to go undercover, infiltrate the Black Panthers, and he quickly became head of security for Fred Hampton, famous chairman of the Black Panthers, and then ultimately gave the FBI the information they needed to, um, should we put a spoiler warning up for history? 
uh, to murder him in his sleep. Oh, and and uh, additional note, he slipped Fred Hampton a sedative in the movie and real life so that he wouldn't wake up and possibly, you know, escape the raid. God. Although I thought it was an interesting choice not to show that on screen in the movie. The nice little shot of like taking the powder that was given to him and putting it in Fred Hampton's drink. I almost, even though I know the story, um, I almost forgot that he sedated Fred Hampton. Do you think there was a reason they didn't show that on screen? Even though he's doing easily the worst thing he's do he's done in the movie, it's also when the movie almost makes him the most sympathetic, oddly enough. He has that face. I, I thought that uh, Lakeith Stanfield, in that scene in particular, was pretty fantastic. Although I would admit if somebody was standing around at like a DSA meeting looking like that, everyone would be asking them questions. But for the sake of a movie, it was really heartbreaking to watch him. He looks like he's going to cry for the entirety of that scene. Yeah, because he seemed to have actually started to believe in all the revolutionary stuff. There were things throughout the movie that made him feel more and more sympathetic to the cause. This movie was is one of the few uh, early contenders for award season. Cause I think we all agreed last week that Malcolm and Marie is uh, hopefully just going to be a footnote in history, but this really does feel like an Oscar movie. Although this is one of those things that got pushed back by COVID. And uh, this segues into a, a contrast. This, this movie and this conversation are going to be full of contrasts. The second one I would probably like to make after the sorry to bother you one is comparing this movie to Trial of the Chicago 7. Because programming-wise, before COVID hit, this movie was supposed to be released about a month before Trial of the Chicago 7. It's supposed to come out first! Yeah, yeah, which is hilarious now that we've seen them both. It was supposed to come out about a month earlier, and I think I think it would be interesting to bring it up because Fred Hampton makes a minor appearance in Trial of the Chicago 7, going in and uh, I think acting in some capacity as Bobby Seale's covert lawyer, if memory serves. Yeah, kind of. He's sort of like giving him legal advice, which is, I mean, in real life, everyone knew that trial was a sham and they were fully expecting to eventually get it thrown out. And they did. Everything was overturned. Because you know. Bobby Seale was roped in to all of the activists from the, the rest of the Chicago 7 because the... FBI and the sort of prosecutorial body at large wanted to tie the Black Power Civil Rights Movement to other branches of leftism, such as like socialists, communists, anti-war activists. They wanted to package it all together. And uh, that, that was bullshit because they were completely separate cases. But one thing that's uh, funny about this is Trial of the Chicago 7 is definitely a beast that was unleashed by screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, who for a long time has sort of been a dog of the neoliberal trends, you know? He he writes neoliberal movies. He is the liberal king. I don't think that man could ever write a single screenplay without the words for the troops mentioned in it. It's very wild how uh, Aaron Sorkin is like me, neoliberal. I am going to write a movie about leftist infighting. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that thing where... He, he doesn't like leftist thought. He does not agree with that shit. He probably thinks capitalism is a pretty solid system built on a fully functioning meritocracy. But the weird thing is, he's got that thing unpopular kids have, or the kids who are, you know, in the unpopular clubs. He wants to be liked by the other kids whose ideas he despises. 
He's like, no, no, you leftists are dirty, unwashed hippies. Here, let me show you. I'm gonna make a movie. You're gonna, you're gonna fucking gobble up. And then all the leftists who watched it were just like, uh, did you know that when Bobby Seal was gagged and bound and put before court, it lasted for three fucking days? It wasn't just. And the prosecutors definitely did not, or not like, this is wrong. The prosecutors did not yeah, do that. Yeah, the lawyer for the, <laughs> the other Chicago 7 kids didn't go up and go, Frank Langella, you're the first racist man I've ever met. Now release this black man from bondage. It lasted for three fucking days. Though, to be fair, that lawyer was pretty fucking cool. Fuck yeah, he was, dude. The lawyer in real life is a really cool guy. Fuck yeah. Uh, if, ever, if there was ever, like, a trial that involved leftists being put on trial, like, seven out of time, ten times he was there. One of the things that is um, notable about the trial of the Chicago 7 is how much it branches from the historical account of the Chicago 7. And uh, one of the things that's sort of indicative of how that movie morphed it into sort of this like weird neoliberal Clinton voter movie was that at the end, when he's reading the names of those fallen soldiers, they neglected to mention that that guy also tried to read the name of the fallen Vietnam soldiers. Yeah. It wasn't just American soldiers. It was soldiers on both that sides. Is a, that is a through line for today is generally just disregarding the anti-imperialism narrative, because that also ties into another narrative that people are afraid to show in Hollywood movies, specifically producers, writers, anyone who goes through the studio pipeline. It's anti-imperialism and it's anti-capitalism. This, this movie makes you wonder what couldn't they get through? Because this is a minor miracle that this even got made, right? Fred Hampton, the Fred Hampton. It's basically a movie about him. His son, Fred Hampton Jr., who is the current leader of the Black Panther Party Cubs, the chairman of that, was a consultant on the movie, and he said it. he endorses it. He said, we didn't win every battle, but we won enough of them. And then he made some comment about how a revolutionary is never satisfied. Yep. I uh, There's this write-up, Sonia Kelly's write-up in the LA Times. I read That's that. That's where I found that quote first. And I noticed throughout the article that there were a lot of, like, it's seemingly battles won and lost. It seems like the production for this was fraught with compromise. And it makes you wonder what the compromises were. Because this is already pretty accurate as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. There's I, If you go on the Wikipedia page, there's not a section that says historical inaccuracies. Like, for the most part, the only thing that's kind of not right is... I think they're portraying Fred and Bill as a little older than they actually were. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually wanted to mention that because I think the the contrasting article to Sonia Kelly's uh, article in the LA Times was Angelica Bastien wrote a uh, pretty negative review of this. And uh, she said that one of, one of her talking points that I found more interesting was that the casting actors who were as old as Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield kind of sanded off the tragedy a little bit because Daniel Kaluuya is 31. He's nine years older than Hampton when he died. Lakeith's 29, which is 12 years older than Bill was. The, the, the FBI got into this game and ultimately were killing extremely young men, barely old enough to drink. Bill O'Neill was a child. Yeah. Like... Is he a rat? Yes. Is is he responsible, for, at least in part, for what happened? Yes. 
But he was a child. Yeah, you can't really hold a 17-year-old accountable for this kind of shit. Any developmental psychologist will tell you people's brains aren't fully formed until they're about 26 or 25. And the, the FBI was just completely fucking messing with minors on this one. They, they, they got a young man killed, and they made a child do it. Which, it would have been interesting. I, I do wonder if they could have gotten actors that were age-appropriate to do this. The problem is... Maybe, but also, these performances are so yeah, good. Yeah, that is one of the things from the LA Times article that was pointed out was they had trouble throughout the whole thing deciding how to... what to put in. Who to, who to have smoke cigarettes, even. Down to the details. But the one thing that did come easily was the casting. And I gotta admit, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are fucking out of the park in this one. Daniel is Fred. There's that scene at the white people church where he walks in and you see the Confederate flag. And the rest of the Panthers are bothered by it, but he just ignores it. And he just You can tell he immediately launches into a spiel. But you can also tell he's slightly uncomfortable by the flag because of what it could mean. But basically... That was the thing about Fred Hampton. That's why the FBI was terrified by him because he went to the white people and the Puerto Ricans and made them all fucking team up. He formed a rainbow coalition, which would be used. A term would be used several times throughout the 21st, 20th century by black people. Yeah. Yeah. Crowns, disciples, young lords, young patriots. He had an idea to sort of unite everybody. And I guess this is a good time to bring up a COINTELPRO. So COINTELPRO, for some background before all of this happened, uh, was a covert illegal program that was started in 1956 by the FBI. Here's a list of groups they infiltrated. Feminist organizations, communist organizations, anti-Vietnam War organizers, animal rights movements, environmental movements, the American Indian movement, Puerto Rican independence movement, the civil rights black power movement, and the Klan. So all of those, except for the Klan, are basically things that now, it's pretty hip in culture to fight for these things, right? Yeah, except the Klan. At least the FBI was right on not liking that one. Yeah, yeah, but they used it in order to establish a bullshit horseshoe theory thing that they br is brought up by Jesse Plemons' character in the movie. COINTELPRO had about six defined tactics. They wanted to create a negative public image for target groups, break down internal organization by creating conflicts, create dissension between groups, restrict access to public resources, restrict their ability to organize protests, restrict the ability of individuals to participate in group activities. And uh, the, th the thing is, Fred Hampton was a living anti-COINTELPRO. He wanted to take all of the groups that COINTELPRO was targeting. Except the Klan. <laughs> people who were elevated enough to know their issue was poverty. Fred Hampton was trying to unite all of these people because Fred Hampton was a leftist. And he has a line in the movie that sort of echoes the most popular leftist sentiment, which is, where there's people, there's power. There's power where the people are. Unifying in numbers is one of the way to protect the oppressed from the oppressors. And Fred Hampton was really fucking great at that. Who would have known what he could have accomplished by 22? Or God forbid he lived a normal normal person-length life. It's such a shame because Bob, Bobby Seale's still alive. Like, what a miracle that is. Like, 
someone's still alive from all that somehow. For, for instance, one of the things that was from that Vulture write-up, the negative review, was that Fred Hampton didn't just do free breakfasts and try to make a medical center. What he also did, uh, another story about Fred Hampton was, at the high school that he went to, he sort of I, I hosted an interracial club that cooled down race relations, right? And he was very fucking successful at that. But... After he was assassinated, race relations escalated to a point where that very high school had to shut down classes for, like, weeks. Fred Hampton was, like, a linchpin in the community. He was a unifying force. He would have fixed Chicago. He was going to unite Chicago. The producer, Charles King, said this about how the movie was made, which will kind of establish, like, boundaries for what may or may not have been able to happen in the movie. <clears throat> to quote King... I think that the reason you're seeing more movies about the time period made now probably has something to do with Donald Trump's rise to power and the shift in culture that he brought. Just as you saw the rise of QAnon in right-wing media, I think you've seen a stronger interest on the part of the studios to put forth content that satisfies left-wing viewers. Not necessarily out of some moral obligation, but just because there's an appetite for it. I think the way that that's worded is very fucking interesting because of the last sentence. Not because there is a moral obligation, but because there is an appetite, right? Yeah. So they don't need to represent the shit 100% as it is. They can still operate within, you know, there are certain things that are outside the boundaries. They're not doing leftism because it's right. They're doing commercially profitable leftism. Oh, God. And on commercially profitable... When you phrase it like on that. commercially <laughs> profitable leftism... I have, I have no more external notes. Let's crack this fucking movie open like an egg. All right. So first things first, that opening scene is real cool. When he like is wearing a coat and he comes in and he's like, I got a badge. And then he later says to the FBI agent, this was one of the big, like my favorite lines of the movie was a badge is scarier than a gun. Because when you've got a badge, they think you've got the whole army behind you. Like, holy shit, that's a fucking killer-ass line. It absolutely, for the moment, is 100% true. Like, I'd say that an unarmed person who claims they're a cop is viewed as more terrifying than a person who actively has a, a fucking gun, gun at you. Because that person with a yeah. gun, you might disarm them. But no matter what you do, that cop is going to fucking murder you. And then a bunch of prosecutors are going to hover around him for like three seconds, slap him on the wrist and go, all right, you were scared. Get out of here. And the reason I say this, it's not hyperbole. The, the reason people are making movies about the 60s right now and, you know, in this political climate is the 60s were the last time that people were this fucking mad at cops. I mean, you could talk about Rodney King in the 90s yeah. plenty, but in the 60s, there was the general sentiment that people have now. They weren't, it wasn't just one riot. It was sustained resistance. Yeah, in the 90s, in the 90s, they were like, all right, we, we let OJ get away with it. I think we've done our work here. That got pacified a lot quicker than the, the, the more contemporary Mike Brown, George Floyd stuff that's going I, on. I think it's because OJ Simpson got away with what he did. I honestly think that is a huge part why. Because, like, everyone else was like, what the fuck? Because, you know, the part of the, re the a big part of the reason why OJ Simpson got away with it was that they, the prosecutors somehow fucked up so badly that they didn't realize they managed to get 12 jurors that were all like, fuck the LAPD. Ooh, <laughs> I wish that happened more. Well, because the problem is, is that now they're always going to ask you, what is your opinion on cops? And if like you even stumble, they're like, get out of here. 
But, you know, it, it made everybody calm down, right? They gave the people what they wanted, but now now people are more in the mood uh, to have a continued discussion and hopefully do direct action, trying to stop all of these things where, where every month or so it seems like we get a new video of a black person getting shot full of 15 holes just for existing. It's so hard. And this is the shit that Fred Hampton and stuff were, like, fighting against. The Black Panthers armed themselves to protect themselves from the cops. And that's when Ron, good old Ronnie Reagan, governor of California, was like, we need gun control. Yeah, that is, uh, I, I think that's from, there's another thing. I, I can't remember if this is Dave Chappelle, but I'm going to go on the record and say this is from a Dave Chappelle skit. He says that if you want gun control passed, talking to sort of neoliberal Democrats, the best way to get gun control passed is to arm every black person you know. Just give them all guns. <laughs> Yeah, and that feels like a Chappelle sketch. It's a Chappelle bit, because seriously, gun, every time major gun control reforms have come in American history, with the exception of some of the times in the Obama administration, a lot of the times when any gun control came down, it's because the black people started buying guns. Yeah, once, uh, once there are coalitions formed of people who actively need to be oppressed by the police, where they're arming themselves and exercising their Second Amendment rights, then suddenly it's a lot harder to buy a certain kind of rifle. Then it's a lot yeah, all harder. of a sudden it's like, where'd my AR-15 go? Yep. <laughs> but I also think this movie showed a great job of being like, Fred was not afraid of violence, but he was very careful in when they would do a violence. One of the things that the less interesting critics, let's just say every white critic, every white critic the who lives. lives in New York wrote about this movie was uh the people sam levinson hate yeah the 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 people who gave this a 97 percent on rotten tomatoes the same way they gave the five bloods great reviews when it came out those people who fall in line kind of like ign does when a new cod game comes out uh the the machine right the publicity machine right they said that this was fucking timely which to the extent that this deals with what it does deal with how far it tries to go I agree with them. This is very timely. And the best early example of that is Lakeith Stanfield's remark about the badge to Jesse Plemons, who plays his FBI agent handler. Oh, yeah. We haven't mentioned Jesse Plemons yet, who is killer in this movie. God, he is so good at playing assholes like people you hate. Jesse Plemons has taken more for the team than about any actor I can think of. What a king. Seriously, like, is there a movie where he's a good guy? <laughs> well, I guess there's that um, other people movie I really like. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's uh, it's from 2015. It grossed like sixty three thousand dollars at the box office, so it's real indie. In, in date night, he plays a good guy, but he plays a bad guy for like three fourths of the movie. Oh yeah, who 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 does he play in The Irishman? Because he's in there. Um. Oh yeah, he plays that idiot. <laughs> Yeah, he plays he plays a dumb kid who's around when the the main kill of the movie happens, and they just have him playing like, someone yeah, simple. Fish. I had a fish in the car. I had a fish in the car. <laughs> and, and he's notorious for playing uh, Todd in Breaking Bad. I believe he kills a child in that show. Just straight up murders a child. He's a white supremacist in that show. Which I which Jesse Plemons white supremacist is more iconic, this one or or Breaking Bad? After that scene, or um. So, so the, the game is on. Basically, Jesse Plemons tells Lakeith Stanfield that you could do about eight years in prison for impersonating an officer and uh, stealing a car. 
which was his whole gimmick. He basically went into a bar full of black people, lied about being a cop, and then tried to steal their car keys and run off with their car. And that didn't really work out. They saw right through that shit. But then Jesse Plemons tells him, instead of going to jail for eight years, you can infiltrate the Black Panthers for us. And naturally, Lakeith Stanfield decides to do that. Yeah, because he doesn't want to go to prison. I kind of get it. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. It's a classic tactic. They're still using it to this day to infiltrate leftist groups. Yeah, they threaten prison time. It's gross. So then we uh, we finally start getting our look at Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. One of the uh, early lines that I thought I, I thought indicated that they were going to go a lot farther than they did is mentioning something that is common Black Panther rhetoric, which is talking very bluntly about what happens to black people in America by saying things like, every ghetto is occupied territory. That is the direct line from the film. Or uh, one thing for Black Panthers in real life is, instead of correctional facilities, they are concentration camps. The most famous one being, instead of police brutality, we should call it police terrorism. Terrorism, yeah. There's a lot of that going on, which I thought was... Uh cool because i didn't expect them to like again even though i thought this movie might go far enough i just wasn't expecting it to i don't know i was impressed by how honest it was i, I just can't get over it I, and how accurate it was for the most part really the only glaringly wrong thing was the like, people being too old one of the uh thing it, it, there are things in the movie where you can tell Akua Nyeri was involved and Fred Hampton Jr. Now Akua Nyeri is an activist who uh is played in this movie by Dominic Fishback and uh her name back in the day was Deborah Johnson before she changed it. And you can you can tell they're involved because um Fred Hampton's son is still chairman of the Black Panther Cubs. And they had some Black Panther essentials. You can tell they wanted to commit to film. They, in, if they couldn't get all of it, that was that was probably expected. But they did get shit like saying police terrorism. In the beginning of the movie, uh, one of the things that sort of happens is Fred Hampton decides to walk into a bar featuring a rival gang called the Crowns. You know, and this is where we get our first glimpse of what made Fred Hampton. So fucking special, and also our first glimpse of COINTELPRO in the movie. Although in the movie it is not named as COINTELPRO. So he arranges a meeting with the Crowns, and then his people show up unarmed into, I think, the Crowns headquarters, right? Yeah, and the Crowns got guns up the ass. The Crowns have big guns. You know, like how there's uh, different, different types of guns in video games for stats. You got handguns, and then you got, like, rifles. They have rifles. rifles. Yeah, they, they they got a lot of shit. And the immediate thing you're thinking of is like, well, Fred Hampton told them in the last scene, they're trying to feed all the kids in Chicago. They're trying to make programs to feed everybody, specifically a breakfast program. And uh, so why wouldn't these people want to work together? And then out comes the fucking note. The fucking flyer that, and they show, they show them writing the flyer. Yes, they do. In an earlier scene, they have Jesse Plemons and two other actors who, whose names I didn't look up, but two FBI agents. And they're having a conversation about the use of the phrase dig in, <laughs> which was really funny to me. Yeah, when they're like, is it dig in or just dig? It was like so fucking like, how fucking like, are you guys stupid? You have to understand, these these people are, like, 
the caucasity of modern day white people is really, really like out there. there. There's a lot of caucasity going around, but 1960s caucasity it has basically been washed away uh, to the point where there's a, d- a discussion later in this movie where someone is essentially saying the 14 words posed as a question. We're talking heavy level 99 racism. And it's not that much of a surprise that even though it is their job to infiltrate, you know, black activist groups, that they would be dumb enough to say dig in instead of dig. Okay? White picket fence, watching Leave it to Beaver motherfuckers. Yeah. God. So the uh, leader of the crowns who's conversing with Fred Hampton whips out this this flyer and he says there were a bunch of them dropped off at the headquarters and he reads this note about how basically the crowns are you know bullshit people who are all gonna get killed by the panthers i can't remember the exact speech but it's like just just generally that the panthers are going to kill the the crowns because they're assholes and and they're with the police and they're taking money from police And it ends so pertinently on on the phrase dig in from the FBI. Daniel Kaluuya has to do the Fred Hampton thing. He has to defuse the situation and convince this person that they didn't fucking write that note. And and, and then he does it. He does it pretty effectively by bringing up that COINTELPRO, although he just knows it as the feds, did the exact same thing to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Sort of the the second time Malcolm X and Martin Luther King are mentioned in the movie. The first time I thought was kind of interesting. So flashback to when Lakeith Stanfield is being sort of uh, recruited by Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons asks him two questions. How did you feel when Martin Luther King died? How did you feel when Malcolm X died? And I thought the purpose of this scene was kind of interesting. What did you feel was the purpose of that question? I think the feds were trying to be like... How much does this guy care? Because if he doesn't give a shit, this is going to be easy to get to trick him to like manipulate and use this guy. At least that was the impression I got from it. It it was pretty artful because Lakeith Stanfield's character knew about Martin Luther King because that was that was the one they generally had under control in the public. There were there was enough misinformation and just general like publicity behind King that it's just expected that black people knew who Martin Luther King was and had strong opinions on him. Whereas Malcolm X more resembled the, the people that Lakeith Stanfield's character was about to infiltrate. So I bet his feelings on Malcolm X were very important to them. And as a 17 year old, and maybe as someone who's not that political, the fact that he didn't even have feelings about Malcolm X made him perfect for the job. Yeah, which the fact he probably didn't have feelings is because, again, he's a kid. He's a kid. And he emphasize this. Even though the movie portrays him as, I think, a little older, I don't know if they're trying to or not, but he was a child. A 17-year-old. He'd be, like, 10 years younger than you, old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After uh, the the meeting with the Crowns, uh, Lakeith Stanfield goes to give his information to Jesse Plemons. And we see an interesting scene that takes place inside of Jesse Plemons's bullshit suburbia house. A scene that made my blood boil. Uh, I don't have as much of a problem because he admits, I think the screenplay is very pointed about the whole Lots of people had heroes in the 60s around that time, but my hero was an FBI agent. 
That wasn't the part that made my blood boil. This movie wasn't as effective at making me hate Bill O'Neill as it probably wanted to be. But there's a thing that Bill O'Neill's fucking FBI handler does a couple times in the movie. And we talked about this in like texts that it is so fucking frustrating. And what is that thing? Yeah, he immediately is like, the clan and the Panthers, they're two sides of the same coin. And I immediately went, oh, he Jesse Plemons is people still think that shit. Jesse Plemons's character offers up a story about how there were, I believe, two young boys murdered in the South by the clan as a way to sort of earn Bill O'Neill's trust a little bit. Because he's like, I worked on that case. I helped get the fuckers who did that. And then he says, the people you're going after right now, the Black Panthers, are the same as the Klan. They're the same because they sow hatred and division. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. This, this is still happening. I know people. I'm Facebook friends with fuckers who sometimes say shit like this. And I, I, I'm hard-pressed to blame them because there's just so much misinformation. Yeah. The FBI COINTEL program was very successful. One of the... Oh, I say program like they're not still doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, they are not doing this exact same thing. Uh, one of the things that I, I found in one of those two articles we mentioned was that it was difficult to make this movie because about 73 or so percent of the information published about the Black Panthers was influenced by the FBI. Yeah, it's a lot out there. You have to really dig to find the truth. Do you know how old I was when I found out about the free breakfast program? I was 20 years old. I knew about the Black Panther Party before that. I was 20 years old when I found out about the breakfast program. Were you taught about the Black Panthers in school? A little. I took AP U.S. history, right? And my teacher was cool. May he rest in peace. Uh, I remember one day when we were going over the Civil War, he just sort of ranted for 20 minutes about how much he hated the Confederates, which was, you know, based. He called them racist traitors over and over again. It was awesome. That is based and Sherman-pilled. Yeah, but when we went over to the Civil Rights Movement, what I remember was how much attention was being given to Malcolm X alongside Martin Luther and how much it was like, I, I, I expected to hear the usual spiel of, oh, Martin Luther King was the good guy. Malcolm X was bad. But in my AP U.S. history class, it was much more nuanced. It was very much like these two people had the same goals, but they just had different methods. I remember being taught as a kid that like Malcolm X wanted to segregate black people from white people in a truly separate but equal society. I was taught that in elementary school. And as far as I can tell, it's bullshit. At my school, Malcolm X was presented uh, to harken back to the Lenin quote. The, the way they tried to use his name in textbooks when I went to school was to signify a hero's journey. Because Malcolm X first said, let's do violence. And then later learned violence isn't the answer. And that was that was what they because they really want to dole this shit out. Violence against the state, stopping the state's monopoly on violence is an essential part of making things better politically. And schools will not have this shit. So at, at my school, they were like, Malcolm X started out. He was a hateful man. And then he converted to Islam and he got a lot better. His soul healed. No, I guess you could say he chilled out a little relative to where he was before, but he still very much was a radical man. Yeah. And so was Martin Luther, for that matter. They, they sensitized the shit out of him, too. Yeah, they definitely don't teach us about any of his organizing near the time of his death, which most people believe was why he was shot, was because he was trying to do some communist shit, organize poor yeah, people. Yeah, he started helping the unions. He was like, all right, 
I think I've done, I'm going to start, I'm going to talk to the garbage collectors who are trying to unionize out here. And I think it was Birmingham. It was somewhere in Alabama that he was shot. And it was the city he was organizing with the garbage collectors, the trash men, if you were. They were trying to unionize and get better wages, better hours. That's, a lot of people say that's why he was shot. Now, I don't, nobody knows what happened there. Could have been the FBI, maybe it wasn't. We don't have a strong evidence that it was the FBI as we do with Fred Hampton that I'm aware of. The FBI killed Martin Luther King and Fred Hampton. Did they kill Martin? I, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I haven't seen as strong evidence about it as I have with Fred. Stay tuned for our podcast on how the FBI killed Martin Luther King and Fred Hampton <laughs> for the full story. <laughs> The, the, the thing that Jesse Plemons uses to cap off that scene is he says you can't cheat your way to equality and you certainly can't shoot your way to equality, which is fucking hilarious. Historically, that is how equality is achieved, my yeah, friend. Yeah, black people were cheated out of equality and sh- and basically violently forced into inequality, but they're not allowed to do it back. Nope. Uh, the moment they want to start shooting or or having e- equality on terms that white people don't agree with, calm down. You know, you're you're going too fast. Gradual reform, incrementalism, and, and outright fucking resistance. Basically, there there's another scene later. I, I guess we could just get this out of the way, where um the FBI the two of the FBI guys who pop up throughout the movie get to sit in with a higher up who even talks to Hoover, the director of the FBI. And this is just fucking wonderful. This is an excellent depiction of one of the most popular things racists have ever done. Like one of the most popular recruiting tactics. So Jesse Plemons goes in and then the, the, the higher up guy at the FBI, this scary old fuck asks him like, how are your kids? Right. And and then, you know, Jesse Plemons, I think he's got two boys and a girl. And then he he directly asks Jesse Plemons, how's your daughter? And Jesse Plemons is like, well, she's like eight months old. And then the director moves right on to, what would you do if she brought home a black man? And like presses this question over and over again. And Jesse Plemons is fucking dismayed by this because that's like talking about who an eight-year-old would date. What What is this, like a Stephanie Meyer book? Like, what the fuck? This is weird. <laughs> but this is essentially the 14 words as a question because this it, it's fucking you know these people who are primarily concerned about a history where black people don't mix with white people preserving a future for white people and white children and this is like the most popular recruiting thing to make white people racist is just like well would, would you want someone in your family to end up carrying black genes and i thought it was i thought it was fucking awesome that they fit in, into the movie because that, that is honestly, if there was like a, now that's what I call racism, volume one, this would be the first track. <laughs> Good thing. I'm, I'm really glad that um, Martin Sheen, barely in the movie, by the way, he is barely in the movie. But when he is in it, oh boy, does he kill it as J. Edgar Hoover. By the way, I want to emphasize that is J. Edgar Hoover, 50 plus year director of the FBI, had dirt on every fucking person alive, J. Edgar Hoover. J. Leonardo DiCaprio made a shitty movie as him, Edgar Hoover. I, I I think it's so such a fucking shame that one of the very few right-wing directors in Hollywood jumped on the J. Edgar movie because J. Edgar was a big theatrical release for the weekend it came out. People were kind of excited for it, but it was made by Clint fucking Eastwood. 
So they made him seem cool, which he wasn't. No, J. Edgar Hoover was a paranoid bastard who committed so many crimes and ruined so many lives. Martin Luther King, who we've all agreed, was a hero who was shot down in his fucking prime for trying to make people's lives better. J. Edgar Hoover's fucking organization sent him a tape of him, like, getting jiggy with some people and told him if he doesn't kill himself, they'll release the tape. Yep. But thankfully, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife was cool. Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, one thing to sort of detract from all these men that we've been talking about, uh, the crooked FBI, and uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty more to say about Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya, is specifically Deborah Johnson, played by Dominique Fishback. Because she She was great. She plays uh, Fred Hampton's love interest. How did you like that element of the film? It was good because it was heartbreaking. It made it made the Hamptons' eventual death all the more heartbreaking. I thought one thing was that was very realistic was how they get together because uh, I, I just thought all the beats were covered very well. First, she's giving him shit. Then she goes in there, and they both know the same speeches. And then you get to have a lot of like cute, loving scenes, you know, like them talking about having a baby together. And my favorite, which is foot capitalism. I was one of the highlights of the movie was the foot capitalist scene. <laughs> There's a scene where Daniel Kaluuya and, and Dominique Fishback are snuggling in a bed and Fred Hampton uh, puts puts his, you know, his feet on Akua Nyiri and uh, she's just like, oh, your feet are cold. And Fred Hampton's like, that's socialism, baby. You got to warm them up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Though. He's <laughs> my feet. Your feet are cold. That's socialism, baby! It's so nice they were able to fit in a moment of that kind of tenderness in this really foreboding movie. This movie's tense as hell, and a lot of people have issues. I know a lot of people have issues with the way it's framed from the villain of the story side. I will say there were a lot more scenes with just Fred than I thought there'd be. It seemed a little more 50-50 in terms of POV than I thought. Well, after reading the articles about how I, I think they, it was to get the movie made because they, they, I don't think they could get the money just to make a Fred Hampton movie. Although I did read some, a, a paragraph about how the world is, is defined by contradictions. And so a good way to explore Fred would be to make a movie about the forces that were against Fred. But most of that vulture write up that I'm referencing actually is about how there wasn't, it wasn't fleshed out enough about Fred's life and it makes his death kind of it falls short of, of an emotional impact. Yeah, maybe I'm just in, injecting all the things I know about Fred and his life into the movie, and that's making the movie better for me. I don't know. I, I think it's hard to tell because we're leftists. So we have a general understanding how our brain works analyzing history, you know? It's it's right. dialectical materialism. It's basically been the capitalists suppressing everybody else, using superstructures such as, like, racism and sexism for a long time. And so we kind of have an understanding of what the black Panthers are just by the way we lens history. But then you have this movie. I, I wonder if somebody who's not aware of all of this shit, like say we showed it to one of our parents, if they, they would have the same understanding of how bad this was when it happened. I feel like my mom's not, I am afraid that I think the movie does a, a sufficient job of emphasizing, Hey, no, no, the cops are the assholes. Oh, it better. But but I'm afraid that somebody who's already pro-cop would watch this and be like, oh, those hero cops. Because there's that one scene that 
I'm gonna be honest. I I think I might have been tired, um, and might have missed something here. There's that one scene where a guy gets in a shootout with the cops, and then he like is standing over a cop, and with like a rifle, yeah. and shoots him dead in the face. I'm happy we're talking about that scene because the way they and framed the, the camera, cop is begging for his life too, and it was so I was. I was a little lost because I wasn't sure what was going on. I think I might have zoned out for five minutes and got very confused. No, no, that happened. That happened exactly as you depicted it. The camera is shooting from below, making this Black Panther just tall as fucking hell. And the cop is saying, please, please, over again. And then, you know, he's got this, the, the Black Panther guy has this menacing fucking face on and blows him away as he's begging for his life. And I guess that that's creatively justified as like, the Black Panthers did some ugly things too. And I guess you have to take, it's like a litmus test. You have to take all the other shit the cops did throughout the movie and decide whether or not that was justified. But it's, it, it isn't very good as propaganda for leftism because they, they also have that Fred Hampton speech where, you know, when talking about the cops, he says, you know, kill a pig, get get some satisfaction. Kill a few more pigs, get some more satisfaction. Kill all the pigs, achieve full satisfaction. So I completely believe you when it's like, if somebody walked into this and wasn't on our side, they might think this is bullshit. Yeah, yeah, so it's a little like, because I'm pretty sure that's a real Hampton speech too. Um, though it might be more removed from the context of the way Hampton delivered it, I'm sure. I, I guess it's asking you to weigh it. The movie does need you to do some legwork and be a good person. Like, this isn't Battleship Potemkin. It's not going to convert you. Because they also have, as, as far as cop offenses in this fucking movie, they have cops repeatedly arresting people, and then when they're in cuffs, fucking beating on them with nightsticks. That's very familiar. They have the scene where outside of Black Panther headquarters, there's a cop chilling with a megaphone talking about how he's going to move in there and, and fucking take the place over, which results in a pretty good shootout. Yeah. Uh, man, the action scenes in this movie. Let me tell <laughs> Yeah, there's an actress in here called Dominique Thorne. She plays a Black Panther named Judy. And she was pretty fucking good throughout this movie. And she was utilized very effectively in the action scene. I thought that their depiction of action, because this is Shaka King's first movie um, for a Hollywood studio. Because he, he already right. made a feature in 2013, but now he's in Hollywood with a $26 million budget. And I thought the way this movie portrayed gun violence was pretty fucking solid. My only suggestion would be like, close-ups man i want close-ups yeah i just want to say about that actress you just named this is her second movie ever dominique thorne her first was yeah her imdb page doesn't even have a photo what <laughs> yeah by the way she's gonna be riri williams in the ironheart tv show for disney plus she's in if beale street could talk she's in judas and the black messiah and now she has this ironheart thing coming up which good for her yeah, uh, they, they have the shootout scene and uh, the, the cops at the end of the shootout decide to um, basically b blow up the building. They go inside, pour gasoline in the place and like burn it from the inside. Yeah, when they burn down the headquarters. Yeah, that shit was absolutely monstrous. Yeah, it was so it was like they already got everyone out of there and then they're like, all right, now let's burn it down. 
Yeah, I, I bet the screenwriter and everything, the, the two screenwriters thought that they were being really clever here by, uh, you know, I guess they didn't want it to be commit, like talked about as unfair or biased because it, they have that scene where a cop is murdered while begging for his life, but they have a lot more scenes of cops doing shit that is absolutely psychotic and racist. Yeah, no, it's terrible. I guess they had to show sometimes the Black Panther Party did a violence too, which, yeah, but what's the thing? Kick a kick a something enough times, it's going to bite back? I don't know. Black Panthers, yeah, they did a violence, but they were, they were up against the entire fucking system. Uh, this was... They were justified in the violence. Yeah, this was written by Will Burson and Shaka King. They, I think they did a pretty good job of depicting cops and the FBI as full-stop racist maniacs. Like, even the one who's quote-unquote not as racist, which I guess is the uh, O'Neill's handler, was the least racist FBI agent in the movie, but he was still pretty fucking racist. They had that bullshit, that fucking scene, where, the, um, so so there's a de plot detail in the movie where after Bill O'Neill is promoted to being Fred Hampton's chief of security, right? He goes over to meet with another chief of security, and they, they meet up in this sort of, like, tiny stairway in like a building and the other chief of security guy tells him about how they found a rat in their group this is when the movie starts to resemble the departed they talk about how they caught this rat and they like poured boiling water on him and dumped him in the bottom of a river right and uh so jesse plemons is then fed this information from o'neill and he goes up to the fbi guys and he's like Hey, I have info on this Black Panther guy who murdered a dude and dumped him in a river. Let's let's get this bread. And then they're like, oh, actually, he's one of ours. Yeah, he's like, it's like, yeah, because now if ever he goes anywhere, we got him on harboring a fugitive, baby. We can get a warrant. And like at first, at first, Jesse Plemons character seems like slightly horrified. And then he thinks about it and he's like, I guess that's clever. Like that was the we I think I think they made it a very intentional thing that he would seem temporarily horrified at some of the terrible things the other agents were doing, but then would go along with it anyway. Yeah, because one of the screenwriting rules of Hollywood un, in the nation where we have the CIA and FBI is you have to have bad appleism. You have to have bad appleism happen where there are people inside the organization who are appalled. And you have to assume that it's the other people's fault and not inherently how the organization is supposed to function. Yeah, but they still like very intentionally showed that he went along with it anyway. You know, like he did nothing to stop. It, it. was about as close to that Hollywood bullshit as they got. I am sure in real life, any FBI person. Mitchell, I'm sure that agent was like, oh, hell yeah. That's fucking genius. Now you got a free warrant. I wish I'd done that. Yo, your operation is way bigger than mine. Fuck yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, you guys are so cool. And, and then they, they just start sh shouting the N-word just while pumping their fists. <laughs> it's like that scene in uh, Black Klansman <laughs> where they're all watching uh, Birth of a Nation. Oh, my God. Fucking love that scene. So there is a point in the movie where it's it's a, it's a very short scene where we have the mysterious hall of cops. It, it happens a couple times, but there's there's one scene that's really quick where basically there is some cop talking on a projector in front of an audience of other cops. And this cut comes in in the movie where basically 
top cop is shouting, I don't care what you do. You gotta arrest Fred Hampton. I want him off the street. And they arrest Fred Hampton for like stealing $70 worth of ice cream. And then he gets two to five years for it. Two to five fucking years. Like at first I thought they meant months, but then the film clearly depicts more than five months passing while he's in prison. And I was like, oh, wait, you go to jail for five years for stealing less than $100 worth of That's not even enough to be a felony. Yes, but if you're black, anything is possible by police. <laughs> Anything's possible by the cops. So we have the portion of the movie where Fred Hampton has to survive in jail. You see some real scary shit. A part of his soul dies. The Black Panthers start to fall apart a little in Fred's absence. And this results, I believe, in the shootout. Fred Hampton learns that the headquarters has been burned down and a part of him mentally fucking breaks. Eventually, Fred Hampton gets out of jail while waiting for the Supreme Court to sort of appeal his case. His girlfriend comes up and reveals she's pregnant. Ah, uh, I hate it when that happens. He never got to meet his son. He never gets to meet his son. Imagine how great that is, though. You just get out of jail. You're finally out. And your girlfriend's the pers- first person that you see. And then she's like, you're going to be a dad. And there's that scene when they're, like, talking, like, where uh, Deborah Johnson's like, I'm going to be a bad mother. And she talks by, like, I'm bringing a child into a war zone. I thought that was very poignant because it is a war zone. I I texted this to you last night. The film pulls no punches in showing that is a fucking war between the Panthers and the cops. Yes, absolutely. And that is one of the primary things that makes this among the first real Black Panther movies is that when you're black, the police are an occupying force. I talk about this all the time. With the the limitations that the cops have, which is to say none, there is no difference between the cops and a very powerful right-wing death squad, a racist gang. The cops have tanks. They have tanks. They didn't back then, but they do now. They will pull them out sometimes. Yeah, they didn't have tanks then, but the... Uh, really, it started in the 90s after the Rodney King stuff. The militarization of the police has gotten really bad in the last 30 years. Exactly. Here, Here's the rule. If a, a public thing like the cops, if they can murder you, and then there is precedent that they can get away with it by lying, even though there is evidence that that is contrary to the truth, that is those are no longer like people here to protect and serve you, that is a gang. That is a gang extorting the public and doing racism. It's an upgraded version of the Klan. The Supreme Court uh, said in a ruling that the police do not have an obligation to protect and serve anyone. Their obligation is the property. Yep. Cops are there to protect rich people. At the end of the day, if you analyze society as a battle between the rich and the poor, you often come out correct. You fucking, like, this This is about the ownership class, and they will divide us up into groups. They will make us think that this is about black people, white people, men, women, people from different countries. But this is about the people with the power oppressing the people without the fucking power. And obviously... Fred Hampton saw through it all. Yeah, you, you have to stop them oppressing people based on using racism. But that is a superstructure that exists within capitalism. And this gets me to a point that is brought up all over Twitter right now about this fucking movie and a big talking point we have to address now that it's been about an hour. The socialism thing. 
the fact Fred Hampton was a socialist. So Fred yeah. Hampton in the movie is depicted as a guy who wants to do a free breakfast program. Chairman Mao is mentioned. I do not think that they tapped enough on general unity through socialism, analyzing this through class conflict. One of the yeah, that's fair. One of the I thought they were in the first twenty minutes, but then they didn't. <laughs> one of the tweets I found to be most interesting was that there is there's a lot of like wealthy black people who are trying to create the image that the Black Panthers and other radical black groups gave black people self-esteem. That is, that is why they were persecuted for giving black people self-esteem, not for organizing as class conscious leftists, but for giving black people feelings about themselves, because that is actually what those wealthy black people do. They get, they're like self-esteem, self-help motivators. And these wealthy black people want to claim the legacy of the black Panthers and the black radicals by portraying them in films like this as people who, committed the crime of giving black people self-esteem. And so I, there are people who criticize this film, partially including me, for not making it enough about class conflict and Fred Hampton's efforts to make socialism happen. Yeah, I think the first hour of the movie really taps into that a lot. Again, when they just straight up, but when they quoted the Chairman Mao quote, which is one of my, Mao is a very complicated figure, mind you. Um, did some good, did some bad. But I think one of the most iconic things he said, probably the most iconic quote of his, which was, war is politics with bloodshed, politics is war without bloodshed. They quote that in the movie in like the first 20 minutes. I was like, God damn, it's going to be one of those movies. And then they show Fred Hampton forming his Rainbow Coalition. And I was like, holy shit, they're doing it. And then they kind of stopped. Let, let's uh, let's examine what's not there, because I think this is one of the big arguments for this movie lacking the socialism stuff. I guess they don't have a scene of people discussing, people benefiting from the socialism. They do not harp on it enough on screen. They do not show poverty being assisted by the Black Panther's actions because if this were a fucking Martin Scorsese movie, you know, that's kind of like the rise and fall template, right? You always have a montage where it's like, and we were doing shit around town, and they show you clips of the shit that they were doing. In this movie, they talk about it a lot, but they do not show you the fruits of what the Black Panthers were up to. They show you conflicts with the police, they show people hanging out in, in a room uh, doing drum stuff, but they do not show the benefits of bringing socialism to the community, which I think would have made it a more powerful movie. Because one thing that's universally obvious is poverty can be taken care of through organizing. They sort of tap into it a little bit when they're rebuilding the headquarters. Yeah, that is one scene where they completely got that right. Yeah, they nailed that, especially with the, the some of the disciples show up and like, we're here to lend a hand. And like, this is, I think, the first thing that shows that maybe Bill O'Neill's character is sort of starting to believe in this shit is when they're rebuilding the headquarters. Yeah, it was really like heartwarming to watch considering how difficult carpentry is and that he was just an undercover pig. Like basically it was, it was heartwarming to watch him go through all that trouble in order to rebuild the Black Panther headquarters. But that's the thing. That whole thing is framed in the conflict of war with police this movie does really prop up the war with police and does not prop up enough 
the war with poverty. Yeah, it's a two-front thing, and they only showed one front, and they, like I said, like, now that you pointed out, I guess it's, the first 30 minutes really make you think it's going to be a lot of like that, because they show him building his coalition. They show him quoting Mao. They show him being, saying, his famous quote is like, I think it's shown in the first five minutes was, we're not going to fight racism with racism, we're going to fight Racism with anti-racism. We're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism. We're going to fight capitalism with socialism. And like that, that is the that is the Fred Hampton quote. If if you ask me, it is that is the quote with the whole you don't fight fire with fire speech. That is the most iconic thing Fred ever said, and they showed in the first ten minutes. So I thought it was going to be a lot more like that. But now that you pointed out, it kind of tapers out a- after halfway through. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a crime thriller about various players operating against each other in an overall greater war with police. Which makes sense because this film was imagined as the departed in the COINTELPRO world. Exactly. But there are a lot of things that are left out, and I, I guess this probably had to do with budgetary constraints. Because, you know... Charles King only has so much money. You don't exactly have Martin Scorsese's budget to make the definitive Black Panther movie. And for screenwriting reasons, you have to frame this with some amount of consistency. But what is lost here is you don't get to properly show the socialism that made the Black Panthers a target for the FBI. You know, they would have been targeted if they were black, just plenty. But the fact that they were organizing people in a socialist capacity, that is historically what got them fucking kicked so hard. There's a reason why they were arguably more aggressive going after Fred Hampton than any other black revolutionary leader. Like, they weren't that... Of course, they were going after Martin Luther King and Malcolm X hard, but they identified Fred Hampton and got him murdered within, like, a couple years. Yeah, he was he was uh, on the fast track to doing actual damage to the bourgeoisie. Like he was uh, more explicitly like Martin Luther King Jr. was a socialist and so was Malcolm X. But Fred Hampton was much more explicitly so than those two were. I, uh, I, I guess we should probably talk about the downfall. Talk about how this all go- unwinds. The C4. So uh, Jesse Plemons... Um, Fred Hampton's appeal to the Supreme Court is denied, and he's going to go back to prison. And so the FBI guys call uh, J. Edgar Hoover up on the phone in that scene I mentioned earlier, and Jesse Plemons is about to have a cigar. And then J. Edgar Hoover, may he rest in shit, gets on the line and is like, prison's a temporary solution. It, it makes people famous. They can write. They can write books from prison. We need something more permanent. Like very explicitly, we need to kill. I was actually kind of surprised that they were very explicit that because not even like Fred Hampton's Wikipedia page says it. Fred Hampton's Wikipedia page pussies out and says many scholars believe that he was assassinated by the FBI. I, I think there have been there. There's a lawsuit that's been happening since Fred Hampton died revealing more and more of what happened in COINTELPRO. Uh, I, I once saw the guy who's been, like, I think the lawyer in the lawsuit, I saw him speak at a book signing, like, recently in, like, the last three years. They've been trying to crack this thing open. Same with Martin Luther King. So Jesse Plemons meets up with Lakeith Stanfield and is just like, okay, well, the bomb thing. Let's talk about the bomb thing. So did uh, so was he... Prov- 
providing the C4 by his FBI handler? Because I think I missed that. I don't even know if that shit was real C4, but he comes up with something that looks like C4 in the trunk of a car to Fred Hampton and uh, a friend of Fred Hampton's, uh, fellow Black Panther. And he's like, hey, let's blow up Town Hall. Let's fucking do this. We're, we're going to win this war with the bombs. And then Fred Hampton's like, what are you, crazy? Then they'll bomb us. Fuck you. You don't escalate it like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you ever seen Fitz the Cat, the old cartoon? There's a scene in Fitz the Cat where uh, the titular character gets up on a car in front of some, I believe, crows who are supposed to represent black people. And he's just like, there should be a revolution. Let's fucking do this. And it it escalates kind of gra- like rapidly into what would happen if everyone like used as much violence as possible. And it ends with that part of the city getting bombed by fighter jets and basically everybody dying except for the military. <laughs> Military always wins, baby. Except when you're, except when they fight rice farmers. Yeah, yeah. Ex- except, except in Vietnam. And uh, so, so Fred Hampton has the same exact thing occur in his mind, and he's like, "No, we're not going to use bombs. That's insane. Because then we'll all die." And he sends Lakeith Stanfield out, and there's a scene of Lakeith Stanfield driving away in a car, taking a wire out of his shirt. That was supposed to be it. That was supposed to be the incriminating fucking thing. But then uh, he meets up with Jesse Plemons at a table and Jesse Plemons is like, hey, can you draw me a blueprint of Fred Hampton's house? This is like the night before he's supposed to go to jail or something. And uh, he's forced to do it because otherwise he's going to go to jail. And then we have the scene where the, I I guess, police force, off-duty cops, sketchy people come into Fred Hampton's house and fucking fill, pump the walls with like a hundred bullets. Fun fun fact, by the way, that scene with the uh, friend of Fred Hampton, I think that was Bobby Rush in that scene, right? Maybe. So fun fact about Bobby Rush, he was the co-founder of the Illinois chapter uh, of the Black Panther Party. And since January 3rd, 1993, so for 28 years now, Bobby Rush has been a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh, wow. That's really nice. He is the only person to have ever beaten Obama in an election because Obama ran in the Democratic primary in 2000 for that congressional seat and lost to Bobby Rush. Oh, man. Bobby Rush is based. Yeah, he's been in Congress for almost 30 years, by the way. So fun fact, some of the people in this movie are still alive, but they're very few and far between. You got to love it when electoralism squeaks through someone who has a soul. Yeah, like, obviously, he's been a little liberalized in his time in Congress, but he's still one of the more left-leaning members of the House. Right on. So they they have the harrowing scene where there's a bunch of people sleeping over at Fred Hampton's house, and uh, they come in and blow him away. Before this, uh, we, we have the scene that was mentioned where Lakeith Stanfield is there. Before every before everybody goes to sleep, and he slips the thing into... <laughs> By the way, he's given the poison at a club. Like, by this random pimp-looking guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. The scene where um, he he has just drawn up the blueprint, and he goes to a club or a bar, and uh, th- there's this, this random, yeah, older black gentleman who's trying to hit on a woman who then goes to hit on Lakeith Stanfield. And um, Lakeith, Stanf- <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield tells the woman he's FBI. 
And uh, she walks away uh, to go to the bathroom and she's like, all right, well, give me another drink, Elliot Ness. And then the uh, the older gentleman goes over and he's like, hey, I'm FBI, too. Here, here's a P- here's an article in the paper I want you to read. And it's got the sedative folded into the newspaper. Yeah. And then some awesome shit goes down. So Lakeith Stanfield is like, man, fuck you. And then uh, the, the older guy walks out of there and goes to his car. Lakeith Stanfield starts chasing him and he's just like, hey, what's what's going on? Do you, what do you know? Hey, who are you? And then uh, he starts asking him, can you show me a badge so I know you're FBI? And then he gives him the fucking badge that Bill O'Neill was using to make people think he was FBI. He just hands him that badge, which was like, God, fuck the FBI. But damn, what a power move. What a fucking power move. That is some big dick swinging shit. That that (laughs) moment, because one thing we haven't brought up yet is the score. Mark Isham and Craig Harris did the score. And that is one of the scenes where the score just gets to go fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's very subtle for a lot, a lot of the movie, but there are some scenes where it's really intense. And it's an incredible score. It's a great score. It's it's fun having a jazz score over a movie about black revolutionaries. It's just fitting. It's fitting. because You know, some of my favorite black revolutionary movies have a jazzy score. This one. Sorry to bother you, score is kind of jazzy. It's it's a lot. La La Land. La La Land, the most brackle evolutionary movie there is. When a white guy saves jazz music. It's it's a lot better than the um, Baz Luhrmann, uh, Jay Gatsby movie, <laughs> The Great Gatsby, where um, Baz Luhrmann. Oh, when they just play Jay-Z Baz songs? Baz Luhrmann's doing an interview and he's like, yeah, back then they listened to jazz, which was super like counterculture at the time. And what was counter, what's ca- counterculture now? Jay-Z. Hip hop. Yeah, Jay-Z, the billionaire. That's some real counterculture right there. Yeah. I mean, I like that movie, but it's still... And I kind of like the decision to play modern music because it's stylistic. It's still weird. Baz Luhrmann is about as gaudy as it gets. Baz Luhrmann is the Persian rug of directors. (laughs) If you don't like gaudy, you don't like Baz Luhrmann. (laughs) Thankfully, I do. So uh, everyone's asleep at the Hampton household. "'Twas the night before jail time, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, except for the pigs! <laughs> pigs! Pigs quietly come in, and you can see their footsteps lit up under the door. Then they turn off the lights, and then a hailstorm of fucking bullets goes through. Many are shot. Me- uh, I think a few people die. Fred Hampton can do nary a thing about it because he was slipped a sedative by fucking Judas. Then we have a moment that was negotiated before this movie was even made. Dominique Fishback's character is the last one to come out and sort of get ushered in by the cops. Everyone else comes out, some to success, some to getting the shit beaten out of them by these racists. Right. And Dominique Fishback is the last to march out. And, uh, some wild shit goes down. So it was negotiated before the movie was made that it, it be portrayed accurately in the capacity that Akua Nayiri did not cry when Fred Hampton was killed. Yeah, that, I remember reading that in the LA Times article very explicitly. I didn't cry when Fred died. Because the Black Panthers had discipline. That is brought up a lot in the movie, right? Discipline. It's a, yeah, and it It's shows. a disciplined organization. They don't speak out of turn. If we had the disciplinary the Black Panthers did, Bernie Sanders would be president right Bernie now. Bernie would have fucking won. <laughs> I mean, judging from the fact that Joe Biden was able to win, I'm actually kind of convinced anyone could have won except Mike Bloomberg. But <laughs> that's besides the point. So um, she comes out, and then 
this is this next thing that happens is why I think this movie needs to be shown in schools. Because as much as I've harped on it for not being socialist enough for me, this scene alone is important to show everybody. A cop goes in, observes, observes that he's still breathing, that Fred Hampton is still breathing. And then he goes, oh, looks like he's going to make it. And then shoots him twice at blank range. God, that fucked me up. I had to pause the movie for a minute after that because I was like, oh, oh, my God. I, I, like, I felt something drop to the pit of my stomach, you know, out of sadness. I, 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 I cried. I cried. I cried. Wow. Does this really I emphasize cried. the point? All cops are bastards. And what they did was atrocious. Yeah, the closest, like I said, the closest to bad appleism the movie gets is Mitchell being like, that's kind of fucked up, but really good idea. That's the closest to bad appleism it does. They have plenty of betrayals of cops doing cop things. Uh, them arresting people on bullshit charges, them beating people who are already restrained, uh, goading people into, you know, armed conflicts that they know will result in more, like, unnecessary death, and shooting a guy who's been sedated, fucking blowing the father of a child away while he sleeps in bed like they did to Brianna fucking Taylor. Except this time, I guess it was more premeditated. God, it's so fucked up. It's so sad. Yeah. And that's basically where the movie ends. Like, I think there's a scene at the diner afterwards. Like, hell it ends there. There's a whole epilogue. I can't remember. I'm going to be honest. I kind of like, I felt so sad afterwards that after Fred's death that I think I zoned out a little. I, I got brought back in by the ending text where it was revealed that, uh, I didn't realize this. I knew Bill O'Neill died young. I didn't realize he killed himself. Yeah, they, they have an epilogue where Jesse Plemons gets to do his 30 pieces of silver with Keith Stanfield's character, but it's like two or $300 and the keys to a fucking gas station. <laughs> the man got Fred Hampton killed and Lakeith Stanfield gives him the keys to a gas station and he's like congrats you're a business owner now you're free you get to work at a gas station oh yeah i saw that now oh god it's like a spit in the face it, it really it really just shows like if you do this bullshit that their their compensation to you as an informant is going to ultimately be a joke at your expense he really was judas if this all is for the ownership class in the capacity they're going to let you in, it's going to be as a court jester. They're going to make you work at a gas station. They're not going to give you keys to anything. They're not going to make you a fucking FBI agent. They're going to trap you behind a counter so you sell fucking cigarillos to people. You know? Uh, you see, but but Bill O'Neill wins out in the end because gas station can be very profitable if you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of business in oil, and if anyone knows that, it's the fucking intelligence agencies. <laughs> It's the fucking feds. Jesus Christ. The fucking feds saw the 70s gas crisis coming. They're like, let's give them a gas station to fuck with. Yeah, yeah. I hear the Saudis are about to cause an oil embargo. Let's just fucking, (laughs) this will be funny. (laughs) Let's give this asshole a gas station. I mean, it's it's okay, because if he at least runs it until the early 90s, the Gulf War, he'll realize this is going to be a profitable business for a while. Meanwhile, in 1990, boom, he just fucking kills himself. (laughs) Yeah, which... I thought the movie did a good job of making Bill O'Neill a complicated figure. Yeah, yeah, I know we're we're wrapping up here, but one of the things from the Vulture article I found to be the most interesting was that the Bill O'Neill in the interview 
When asked, like, how do you want history to view you? He says, well, I wasn't an armchair activist. I was there. I had the bravery and the courage to go out there and take a stand in part of the struggle. That kind of contradiction of character was not in the Bill O'Neill of the movie. Yeah, like, the, the Bill O'Neill of the movie seemed to only kind of believe in it. He felt hamstrung to be there. But the Bill O'Neill they saw in that interview was so... Like, like it, it was unclear what his politics were. He, he just kind of, he didn't seem to take pride in the fact that he was there. Like, he had some actions that were nice, but as far as, like, inside of his headspace, did he really feel like he, he was part of the struggle? Even as the person who brought down Fred Hampton, at least he was being there? That isn't depicted in any of the scenes. Which is a shame, because that would have made him a even... That might have actually, because here's the problem. I think the movie, it feels like the movie's trying to fight itself on making O'Neill a sympathetic character. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like, we want to make him sympathetic, but also we don't. <laughs> Akua Nayiri, one of the people they collaborated with while making the movie, went to Bill O'Neill's funeral after his suicide. And she had planned for like weeks that she was going to spit on his fucking casket. She was going to spit on him. And then when she get there. Which, if She'd be justified in doing when that. When she got there. She couldn't bring herself to because she kept looking at the guy in the casket and going, no, that's not him. No matter how many people around her said, yeah, that's him. That's Bill O'Neill. She could not spit on him. So there's got to be some complex feelings about that. You know, time has Bill O'Neill clearly did some good. Yeah, I think. Time made this complicated as it does for most people. And uh, so they, they wanted to. You're right. There was that internal struggle where they didn't want to make him seem, I guess they didn't want to give him the satisfaction of being sure he was Judas, but he was there for years of this. Yeah, they, they still wanted, they wanted to make sure he was Judas, but at the same time, Bill O'Neill in real life seems to have been a complex, a walking contradiction of a man. But they had to whittle everybody's politics down. They couldn't get too inside Fred Hampton's head. They couldn't get too inside of Bill's head because they had to frame everything as a series of like justified actions. And the only scenes that were allowed to float outside the gravity of that were, I guess, the scenes between Fred Hampton and the love interest. Yeah. Because that's part of the boilerplate like screenwriting strategy. Yeah, but it worked. I mean, and like I said, Fred Hampton Jr. gives this a thumbs up. And that man is really continuing his father's work, so. Yeah, yeah, as far as that, uh, the movie succeeded in the capacity that this isn't like Trial of the Chicago 7, where it's complete bullshit, where it like. It's liberalized to hell. Good movie, but liberalized yeah, to hell. Yeah, it, it doesn't paint leftists as neoliberals. It doesn't have Aaron Sorkin syndrome. I like, I like the, I like, I love the, it's me, a Marxist. I love the institutions of American democracy. I just think there's some bad people in it right now. Yeah, we're trying to tear down capitalism, but God bless the troops. <laughs> Or how about, oh, slight note about the Trial of Chicago 7. Remember that scene where that guy punches the, like, bailiff? And he's like, oh, I just punched him. What the fuck? Yeah, the notorious pacifist. Yeah, the radical pacifist. Like, when I read about that, I was like, oh, why'd they make him punch him? That's kind of insulting to his legacy. Actively insulting to his legacy. <laughs> like, that's kind of fucked up. Good movie, just ignore the historical inaccuracies and he can really enjoy it. Yeah. I think that educated people watching this will not find it terribly offensive. I think they'll find it lacking, which considering how new this appetite for leftist cinema is, I don't blame, I, I, I'm not fucking even, I'm not even mad. It's not even, it's not like they could have done what Boots Riley did and put horse people in the movie. 
to like Act- distract the studio executives. Actually, they had the same producer as Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, so- I saw that. So it's the same. It's the same fucking rich Marxist who's like, man, why not? I may be capitalist, but <laughs> I am Marxist capitalist. I am a I am a Marxist capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fucking um, Charles King is going to start a streaming service called Leftflix. Marx Plus. It's just his movies. Leftflix. <laughs> this is a step in the right direction, and I think it it did some good things by real world people. It depicted the Black Panthers as a fraction of what they were, and even that is an advancement in the American zeitgeist. That is more than we used to have in movies. If you want to see a movie that um, displays the Black Panthers as they were in truth, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but PBS. Yes, the government-funded network, PBS of all places, has an excellent documentary about the Black Panthers. It's called The Black Panthers Vanguard of the Revolution. It is... It's an amazing documentary that portrays them as very staunchly anti-capitalist and socialist. And it go it dives into the breakfast program. It's it's fucking mind-blowing that PBS made it. Yeah. Because again, government funded. I uh I I think that what we're doing here, though, is we're breaking into the realm of narrative fiction, because one of the reasons that art exists is to non-violently change people's political opinions. Because you can do that with violence, you can do that with action, but art is an arm of it. You can make... All art is kind of propaganda for a viewpoint. And one of the most popular forms of art in the whole fucking world is narrative movies. And this is a narrative movie with a huge cast and a lot of attention put on it that is going to hopefully change some people's minds about what the Black Panthers are. Because it's it's a, it's a good movie. It's... Uh, it's addressing the moment about as well as people are ready to address the moment. I hope that this producer's movies in the future go further, but this is something I I didn't say very much through the podcast. And we'll say now it's so well put together. It looks amazing. It is a great cinematography. Amazing score. Amazing direction. Amazing. I remember when you watched the first 15 minutes, you were like eight out of 10 ideas, seven out of 10 movie. Do you stand by that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would give this movie a solid four and a half stars out of five. Yeah, it's it's not a Kubrick movie. It's not a crazy art film that reinvents cinema. I think as like one of those Oscar movies that gets nominated for Best Picture, it fits in that category. I hope it does win Best Picture as of right now. Uh, but fucking this just in Malcolm and Marie has won best picture at the 2021 Academy Awards. All right. I'm going to heaven to see O'Neal. We'll be in the same room. <laughs> see ya, Billy. But yeah, my eight, nine, 10 out of 10 is reserved for movies that are like modern classics. This feels like your average best picture nominee. My seven out of 10 is still a serious fucking rating. That's fair. Uh, I I, uh, rate things highly. If you go to my letterbox review, it'll show you the distribution. I give more fives out of fives than anything else. Uh, Only because a lot of my letterbox ratings are imported from IMDb. And if I rate a movie on IMDb, it's just because I remember to. And usually I only remember to rate the movies I really like. Oh, that makes complete sense. From a formalist perspective, it's it's just fucking lovely. I think everyone who watches this is going to have a great time with the craft and execution and a really shitty time because 
boy, have we seen enough of cops being cops. God, man. Can we end this podcast on Fuck the Police? Yeah, in a second. I have one last thing to plug before we we do that. Um, uh, For the legacy of Fred Hampton, I'm going to link in the description to the Save the Hampton House GoFundMe. They are doing a GoFundMe to try to save the Hampton House. They're like a $100,000 shy of their goal. Donate to that shit to preserve Fred's legacy. His words will live on. His ideas will only grow as time because we are right. The people will unite and rise up against their fucking oppressors. We will overthrow capitalism and all the races will stand in fucking harmony and the ownership class will be dissolved. We will free ourselves from this bullshit one day. Fred will be, it'll bring a tear to old Ronnie Reagan's eyes as he burns in hell for being the piece of shit he is. We will, we will shatter the FBI and the CIA into a million little shards, just like JFK tried to. That is what got him assassinated. We will break apart the system. (laughs) Hey, this just reminds me. I know where J. Edgar Hoover's buried. You want to go piss on his grave? Fuck yeah, I want to piss on J. Edgar Hoover's grave. Let's go! Yeah, that's our... We have a we have a grave piss and road trip. I think the first thing we discussed was uh, Harvey Milk's assassin. Yeah, we're going to piss on Phil, Dan Phil, White's Phil. grave. Yeah, we're going to piss on Dan White's grave, then we're going to hit J. Edgar Hoover up. Everybody who ever assassinated a civil rights figure is going to feel the might of our piss. Yeah, they're going to get real yellow down there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, anyway... My overall thoughts is NWA said best.